Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire, where spring is on its way. The first daffodils have appeared in the garden. Hello, it's Richard Heller here in south-east London, under the glare of a white sunshine, but no daffodils. And today, Richard, we've got the most, uh, well, I mean, a thrill to have the most fascinating guest to tell us about the history uh, of cricket in Zimbabwe. Well, we certainly have. We really couldn't ask any better than our guest today. He's one of the greatest cricketers of the modern age, not just for Zimbabwe, but I think of all countries. He went on to become a great um, cricket coach and technical director, uh, where he still is. But um, perhaps most important, he's someone who made, as a cricketer, one of the most significant moral gestures ever made in the history of sport. So it's a great pleasure and thrill to welcome Andy Flower to the podcast. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Richard. Nice to see you again too, Peter. It's great to see you. I first met you, you know, Andy, in 2003. I was at the World Cup down in Cape Town and there was the eve of uh, World Cup party and I was very privileged to be there because I was with Basil D'Oliveira, who I was writing a book about. And uh, it was the big one of the issues was, of course, Zimbabwe, where there had been the great repression going on. And you were, uh, you were the captain of the Zimbabwe team. And I asked you what would happen when you went to Zimbabwe. And you said, well, we've got one or two things planned. <laughs> That's all you said. I remember that, that little dark room while we were waiting to go out and, and, and walk around Newlands for the opening ceremony. And I remember that conversation really well. I also remember you handing me, in a rather clandestine fashion, a videotape of a documentary piece that you'd done in Zimbabwe on some of the repressive tactics of Mugabe and his men when they were, I think they were stopping aid to opposition areas. And, you know, Henry Alonga and I had planned what we were going to do. And I obviously couldn't tell you exactly what we were going to do, but I did allude to something being on the cards. Yes, I'd just come back actually from making a film about the way in which the Mugabe regime was not allowing mealy meal or grain to get into the MDC areas. Uh, And I'd been there kind of witnessing the starvation that that was causing. Yes. Uh, Peter, I I probably didn't tell you at the time, I'm sure I didn't, but um, in our planning of our black armband protest, one of the catalysts, um, Nigel Huff, catalyst for for this protest, Mm -hmm. who was an opposition uh, activist um, and also a very successful farmer and businessman in Zimbabwe, he originally had asked us, to certainly do something to bring attention to the human rights problems in Zimbabwe. But he wanted us to make the statement at the opening ceremony. And Henry and I had, had rejected that suggestion and, and obviously went for something slightly different. But I, I remember feeling particularly nervous because of what I knew we were going to do. Mm. Feeling particularly nervous even going into that opening ceremony at the beautiful ground at Newlands. 
thought it was lovely, yeah. Andy, tell us about the, um, the planning of that wonderful gesture um, that you made and tell us a bit about the, uh, what actually happened in the aftermath. Well, as I said, Richard, uh, the, the catalyst for us even thinking about any sort of statement was Nigel Huff, who I, I had played for Zimbabwe with Nigel. Uh, he used to be a professional squash player in his early days. Then he became a, a successful farmer and businessman. And he contacted me to very simply say we had a moral obligation to try to bring attention to what was happening in Zimbabwe uh, and, and find a way to do that. And uh, as I say, his suggestion was to make a stand at the opening ceremony in Newlands. And the, the form that stand would take would have been for me to uh, persuade the entire squad to boycott the World Cup and to announce that at the opening ceremony. I was very reticent to do that because I thought there for a couple of reasons. Number one, I was in my mid-30s at that stage and had played out most of my career. Um, but a lot of these young lads had their whole careers ahead of them. And I didn't think it was fair to be too influential on them and endanger the rest of their careers. Uh, and secondly, I thought that the Zimbabwe government and, and some of their cronies at the top of Zimbabwe cricket might use that stand as an excuse to end white participation in cricket in Zimbabwe. And that's why Henry and I ended up settling on a, a one white man and one black man standing together uh, to make as dignified a protest as possible. And you, did, and you made it at Zimbabwe's first World Cup match, didn't you, rather than at the opening ceremony? Yes, that's correct. We were playing against Namibia, um, and it was our first game in Zimbabwe. And we thought, after getting advice from Nigel Huff and also from David Coulthard, who was or, uh, very much involved in the opposition party at the time, um, and a good friend of ours, a good friend of both Henry's and mine. And we, we took some advice on how to do, how to make the stand in a dignified but powerful way. And his suggestion was to use a symbol, uh, which was the black armband, but also make a statement, which he helped us write, a statement to go out just before the start of the game, um, so that we weren't prevented from actually taking the field. So it was important that the toss had been made, teams had been exchanged, uh, and we were able to take the field with these armbands on. And, you, and just to remind listeners, some, some listeners may not even... This is quite a long time ago now. One, one or two listeners may not even have been born when, uh, that, when that event took place. You, you played the, the match, both of you, in the, in the black armband, didn't you? Yes, we did. We wanted to make as big a splash as possible, but also done in a, in, a, in a dignified manner. So the statement was very carefully written, uh, and we wanted to ensure that it was a statement about human rights and the abuses of human rights that were taking place in Zimbabwe at the time, and not a political statement. And uh, so we, we did feel that um, the arrests, the murders, the rapes, the beatings 
that had become very much just a, a part of normal everyday uh, living in Zimbabwe, we thought we had we that is what we needed to bring attention to, and that is and that is what we needed to object against. And the World Cup was a really good opportunity to do that. The, the sporting media were focused on Zimbabwe and South Africa, the, the joint hosts, and uh, this was an opportunity. Uh, once it once the seed had been sown in our minds, this was the an opportunity that we felt obliged to take. Well, you did, you did take that opportunity in a brilliant style. I think it took everybody by surprise, and I assume it took the Zimbabwe government by surprise, the Mugabe's government. Um, otherwise, I'm sure you'd have been prevented. And uh, if you hadn't made the gesture, the World Cup might have just proceeded normally, mightn't it? And Zimbabwe might have just been treated as a, a normal country, or, or all these issues might have been ignored, and it might just have been allowed to take part in a sort of global sporting event. Yes, and it, it was that premise that drove us to do something about it in much the same way that sporting sanctions were put on the apartheid regime in South Africa and had been very, a very powerful message to South Africa, who are generally sports crazy. We, we thought that the things that were happening in Zimbabwe were abnormal and we shouldn't pretend that they were normal. And, it, and in, in fact, we'd all, I think, through, through the drip drip of news of these abuses, we had become almost used to them. And there was a certain apathy about the general population in Zimbabwe, just accepting that this was the way that we were living at the time. And I remember actually on the day that Nigel Huff had approached me, to do something during the World Cup. I, had, I was I, over a coffee in a cafe in Zimbabwe. I was contemplating his suggestion and was flicking through a, one, the only independent newspaper at the time. And on an inside page was an article about one of our MPs in one of the high density areas in Harare who had been arrested, uh, thrown into jail and beaten horribly and the fact I, I couldn't get over the fact that this was just a small article on an inside page of the independent newspaper and that was such a clear example of how we normalized some of these abuses and it was a strange coincidence that absolutely solidified in my mind that we should do something. No the consequences for you and for Henry Olonga would have been extremely difficult what tell me what what the response was from the regime well while we were deciding what to do we took some security security advice from david coltart's security people and the very clear message from them was keep this very quiet while you're planning it and secondly don't expect that after you've you've made the stand that you can then return to normal life in Zimbabwe. That's not how the Mugabe regime has worked over the years. So their very clear advice was you'll be ending your international careers and you shouldn't remain in the country. And, uh, and the reason for that was because people that opposed the Mugabe regime at any obvious uh, public level like that tended to have accidents, uh, and those were either car accidents or 
burglaries that have escalated into stabbings uh, or, or really bad beatings. Um, but things tended to happen to people that created that sort of trouble. So we, uh, we obviously debated am amongst ourselves whether we wanted to end our careers. Uh, it was a, obviously a, a much bigger decision for Henry to make because he was, I think he was only 26 at the time, whereas I was mm. in my mid-30s. And he had to end his international career. And he was a fast bowler, a genuinely fast bowler, up there in pace with any of the quicks around the world and a, a real black sporting icon in the country, the first black test cricketer. Uh, and a man whose future really would be perfectly mapped out uh, if, he had, if he had continued his cricket career. Um, so I thought it was an incredibly brave and sacrificial stand on his part, knowing that he wouldn't be safe in his own country anymore and he'd have to leave. I don't think he's ever returned, has he, to Zim? No, he hasn't. He hasn't. I've been back once. I took my kids back about four years ago to meet our Zimbabwean friends. Uh, they were all born in Zimbabwe and, and I mm. took them back and we, we toured around the country, which was wonderful. Such a beautiful country. Yeah. It, it, it really is. But Henry hasn't been back. And he faced death threats, didn't he, Henry Olonga? Imagine yes, he did. done too. I don't know. He did. I, I didn't. But I obviously knew how these guys operate. I think... You know, it's very well known that political opponents uh, disappear or have accidents. So we knew the dangers involved. Henry uh, did get direct threats and therefore uh, needed, to, needed to leave and, and was luckily helped to get, a, get across to England and he started a new life over here. Prior to taking the stand, I obviously discussed it with my wife. Uh, we had three small children. In fact, our, our latest had only been born a few weeks before the World Cup started. Uh, so uh, we, had, we, we decided that we, were going, that we had to leave. And so we planned our exit um, for the family. Uh, and they left, uh, they left during the World Cup. And right. they left along with my parents uh, to start a new life in England. Mm. And... Um, my wife is English, or my wife was English. So uh, luckily we had the, the opportunity to come and live here. Uh, Henry didn't have that uh, escape route, if you like, um, and, only, and was, was only invited over almost as a political refugee, I think, a, a number of weeks or months after the World Cup in 2003 had ended. So while we were contemplating whether this was a stand worth making, uh, I discussed it with my wife, Rebecca, uh, and uh, also, also with my parents and Grant, my brother. Um, my brother wanted to join us in making that stand, uh, to which I replied, do you want to carry on playing international cricket for Zimbabwe? Uh, he said, yes, and I said, you can't do both. Um, but also importantly, in, in the planning of the stand, Henry and I, I particularly thought a balance between white and black was the, was the, the image that we should put forward. 
and one man, one white man and one black man standing together and speaking together and taking action together was a was the the image that we should show the show the sporting world. It was a very dramatic image, certainly. Um, and the what impact do you think it had on um, on Zimbabwe cricket on Zimbabwe itself? Well, it, I, w- one of the things I regret is not continuing the the momentum that had been started during that uh, World Cup in two thousand and three. I think it, if uh, the the reason I didn't was because I. I had enough on my plate with three young children and moving to another country and then starting a new career with Essex uh, in England. Um, and I, I, I really didn't feel as if I had the capacity to uh, continue that momentum. But I do look back with some regret that I didn't because I thought, what, and from a lot of the feedback that I had from white and black Zimbabweans was that it had jerked them out of their apathy um, and reminded them that this was abnormal, this was an abnormal behavior from a government and that we had become so inured to it that we were just allowing it to happen without anyone even saying anything. I'm really struck by what you've been saying, Andy, about the things that Zimbabweans had come to accept as normal. And you know, that really brings home to me the sort of complete breakdown of Zimbabwean society at the time, as it would have any society which accepts these things as normal. I think, if I may say so, I don't think you have any reason to reproach yourself for not continuing the struggle. I think you'd actually dramatised and brought to the world's attention these problems, and you'd set, a, hopefully, a process in motion that, that others could, could pick up. Yeah, well, that that was part of a, of the reason for doing it, and we thought it might be the catalyst for a different way of thinking, and perhaps for others to take action. But it's very difficult to take action in Zimbabwe. It's a it's a small country. It's I think a population of around twelve million people, uh, and the reason I mention that is because being a police state as it is at the moment. I think it's fairly easy for the government to control, uh, given that it's a small population. Add to that the fact that the average Zimbabwean is a very peace-loving person. Peter, you, you know Zimbabweans. Mm. And they, they are genuinely a, a, a lovely, gentle, welcoming group of people. And for them to rise up, and fight against a regime that was very well versed in bullying and oppressing and controlling um, and had a a very recent uh, sort of history of struggle uh, and fighting and and winning a battle against the white minority rule of Ian Smith. These guys were very good operators and and well versed in quashing opposition. And I think this is one of the major problems in Zimbabwe, a small, a, a small nation controlled by a, a ruthless and cunning group of people right at the top. 
The other, one other major problem, of course, was the refusal of the uh, South African government to criticise or to take any action against Mugabe, uh, because they saw them as fellow freedom fighters and refused to listen to the entreaties of of the opposition, in particular Morgan Svangerai could could never really get any get heard in in South Africa. Uh, that very very brave um, leader who, of the MDC who did actually form, go on that, carry on with that struggle, and did eventually form part of the coalition government. And I think there were some incredible, very very brave people who went inside Zim who who took the battle on. Uh, and there were some hopeful, have been some hopeful moments. Yes, absolutely. There are countless number of brave people that are still fighting right now. And when I say fighting, I'm talking about in as peaceful a manner as possible. Um, people like David Coulthard, mm, um, David Morgan Sfungarai, yeah. Eddie Cross. These, yeah, your, the, your uncle, yeah. The, these people have um, dedicated their lives to trying to change the country in, uh, and, and set it in the right direction in, a, in, a, in an incredibly selfless way. And I feel for them because they get knocked back so often and sometimes it seems so easily by a regime that is, uh, as I say, well-versed in those types of tactics. But going back to Zim cricket after that moment, you then got Tatendra Taibu becoming captain in 2004, wasn't it? I mean, what, t- tell us a story of what happened to Zim cricket in the aftermath of the 2003 World Cup. Well, Tatendra Taibu, uh, it was actually a young man that I coached when he was about nine or ten years old. He and a number of other young cricketers that went on to play, play for Zimbabwe were some of the youngsters that we used to go and coach in the high-density areas in Harare. Mm-hmm. And it was lovely to watch his career uh, as he grew up as a, uh, a young cricketer and then a young cricketing leader uh, who went on to captain Zimbabwe. And he had, he had taken on the responsibility as originally as a wicketkeeper batsman who came in while I was still playing and he took over the gloves from me and then he was given the captaincy as a very young man and he he had the he had he certainly had the right morals and the right integrity to lead but he was so young when he was given the captaincy i feel i feel for some young cricketers when when they they're handed so much responsibility uh, with very little leadership knowledge, but he went about it in as brave a way as possible and found that even he, as a young black leader, bashed heads with the, uh, the hierarchy in Zimbabwe cricket because the hierarchy in Zimbabwe cricket had a complete lack of integrity. Um, they were more interested in ensuring that they kept their positions um, and I'm, uh, even though there's not, I, I don't think there's any documented evidence of widespread, widespread corruption in Zimbabwe cricket, I think everyone knows that it was happening. Zimbabwe cricket was uh, quite important as a source of foreign exchange, wasn't it? Because uh, the, I think the, I mean, the Zimbabwe currency collapsed, the, the domestic currency was worth nothing. My, 
my grandchildren enjoy using um, $500 trillion Zimbabwe notes, such uh, giving them as presents. So, you know, controlling Zimbabwe cricket was quite important financially as well as sort of politically, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The, the earnings from our share of the TV right money at World Cups and Champions Trophies was significant for every test nation, but particularly for Zimbabwe with the foreign currency, uh, the, the power of earning that sort of foreign currency. Uh, and this is what attracted so many uh, sort of influential Zimbabwean uh, businessmen and politicians towards cricket. You know, there were, there, there was, there were riches to be had. Uh, and I think these, the leadership story around Zimbabwe cricket is in an, it happened in, in a direct parallel to what was happening in the country. There was poor leadership and leaders weren't there to serve their country and weren't there to serve, uh, in, in a cricketing sense, uh, Zimbabwe cricket. They were there to line their own pockets and ensure their own uh, survival in uh, influential positions in Zimbabwe cricket, uh, which is... Incredibly sad, both for the country and Zimbabwe cricket. Both have spiralled downwards uh, in parallel. And unfortunately, at the moment, I don't see much light at the end of that particularly long tunnel. Andy, tell us one thing. Zimbabwe is a small country with a pretty well a tiny cricket-playing population. And yet you have produced a series of fabulous cricketers. Why, why is that? Yes, I, I think we can be proud of a number of the cricketers that we've produced and, and some of the really competitive international cricket that we've played as a, as a group. I think that there are probably two reasons. Number one is the outdoorsy lifestyle that you lead as a young sports person in Zimbabwe. Uh, so you play a lot of sport, uh, you know, in government schools or private schools in Zimbabwe. I went to a, a small government school uh, in the suburbs of Harare. Um, and I played sport Monday to Friday um, in the afternoons after lessons and then played a match of some description on the Saturday throughout the uh, school year. And so I ended up playing rugby, hockey, uh, squash, tennis and cricket. Um, and it was, it's a wonderful sporting education because it's so well-rounded. And I think in contrast to some other countries who specialise very early, we get this lovely uh, rounded sporting education. Mm. And I think that helps. It, it helps teach you about teams and team dynamics and how to win and lose uh, and learn along the way. Um, but also physically, I think it's quite a good, it builds quite a good foundation for you. Because, I mean, if you look at the players, you know, from Colin Bland, he was a Harare, wasn't he? I mean, yes. Hick, Balance, Heath Streak, one of the greatest all-rounders of all time. I mean, and then Loth and Alonga, you know, brilliant, as good as, as a, a great fast bowler. I mean, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a list from a very small base. Yes, I, I, it is. And I think the second reason why we produced some, some really good cricketers was we had quite a competitive domestic structure, even though it was small. 
Um, and first-class cricket only started in Zimbabwe in about 1992. I think we needed to make it first-class to get the test status that our administrators had fought so skillfully uh, to acquire. And that was one of our strengths in the early and late 90s was our domestic cricket. And in contrast to that now, I think the, the standard of the administrators we had back then Mm. Uh, who realized that you can only build and grow young cricketers from a nice wide, as wide as possible a foundation in, uh, of, uh, in the domestic game, but also as strong and organized a domestic game as possible. This was the breeding ground for our competitive cricketers to grow in. And the contrast now is that we don't have administrators of that quality and domestic cricket has all but shut down in Zimbabwe. Yeah, I know. It's horrifying, um, this. Yeah, it's and some of those brilliant sports clubs that were hubs of various different sports and activities uh, and social life um, just aren't, uh, aren't, aren't there in that sort of quality anymore, uh, let alone first-class cricket being a nicely structured uh, or, and organised uh, system um, that that gave uh, a sort of direction to young burgeoning sports people. You're being a bit euphemistic, I think, about some of the administrators. I mean, there was such a financial opportunity to really drive forward the game in in the high intensity areas to make it really turn it into a, a kind of bring bring the the whole population into the game. Uh, that said, I was really impressed. I took a cricket team to Zimbabwe uh, six or seven years ago. We had a glorious time, wonderfully uh, looked after, but also I was very much impressed by Heath Streak's academy in Bulawayo uh, and there was w- and other academies elsewhere around the country which really were developing skills uh, and you could see the brilliant players from the high-intensity areas. Has that happened? Is that continuing? I've been out of the country for quite a while now. I haven't seen Heath Street's Academy or, uh, or any of these other um, centres that are developing uh, youngsters. But I do, I obviously stay in touch with people in Zimbabwe. And I think those, those uh, little growth centres are, are brilliant. But I think most importantly, you need a good, strong domestic game that is well organised around the country for us to grow cricketers that understand the game and become skillful enough to then attempt to make yeah. the jump into international cricket. And I think this is a, this is a problem for, the, for Zimbabwe at the moment. And if there's no good domestic structure in Zimbabwe, do young uh, Zimbabwean cricketers have to go abroad to, to further their careers? I mean, Zimbabwe's always exported a lot of players... Look, Zimbabwe is still picking an international team. They've just won a test match against Afghanistan in two days Mm. in Abu Dhabi. Um, They continue to be competitive to a certain level. Uh, Unfortunately, other sides have overtaken them. Sides like Bangladesh, who we used to routinely uh, beat, um, have become a quite powerful young test nation. Um, And even sides like Afghanistan regularly beat Zimbabwe. So 
it's definitely the international cricket is definitely played at a different level, but they still have some excellent cricketers playing their trade in Zimbabwe. It's blessing Muzarabani who destroyed the Afghan batting. Tell us, what do, you, what do you make of him? He played for Northamptonshire last year. Yes, he did. I, I remember being very impressed when I saw him play in the World Cup qualifiers in Zimbabwe uh, a few years ago uh, when uh, Zimbabwe just missed out. Um, and I think the West Indies got through. West Indies and Afghanistan got through in those qualifiers. And that's when I first saw him, tall, thin, uh, with pace and balance. He's a good example of just natural talent coming out of the country. It's really exciting, actually. I, I mean, I, we all thought that Afghan would smash Zimbabwe in that match. And in fact, Zimbabwe destroyed Afghanistan. And Muzarabani, how old is he, Richard? Do we know? I mean, what sort of future has he got? He's 24. There's, there's abundant physical talent in the country, even though it's a small population. But it needs to be organised. And it needs to, and it it needs structure. Blessing Muzarabani played for Northamptonshire as a call plaque player, which was sort of a new factor that got introduced into county cricket in in twenty oh four, and it's now been that route into county cricket has now been shut down since Brexit. What do you see the impact of that, um, Andy? Will it make a, uh, an impact on Zimbabwe and, and other countries that were beneficiaries? I think the biggest impact on the loss of the Colpac player status in this country will be on South African cricket. And it'll force some of these South African players that were playing their trade over here under the Colpac ruling uh, in county cricket, it'll force them to go back and play for South Africa. Uh, if they're good enough to play here as overseas players, of which there's a restriction to one or two per county, um, then they might, they might continue. But otherwise, it should strengthen South African cricket, those cricketers going back into their domestic and, and international structure. Yeah, I didn't like... I thought that Colpac was a really bad thing because you've got these decent South Africans coming over, taking opportunities away from English players in the county game, uh, and they weren't really test, play, test players from South Africa. I thought it was... I didn't understand why they were allowed in, actually. Well, it was the law. Um, I know it was. And it was I the law. Yeah, you know, now, because now that's that one consequence. One consequence of Brexit. We've, we've, <laughs> it's the end of the call, the end of callbacks. He was a Slo- <laughs> very, un- very I never understood a, a why Slovakian, a Slovakian handball player uh, with an influence on on world cricket. Yeah. You know, I never but expected that, that. I never really understood why why the European Union was able to <laughs> usher in a, a generation of, of of reasonably good South African cricketers into the English county grain. Um, Andy, tell us about the. You've just come back from. Um, uh, Multan, uh, where you've been coaching the Multan Sultans. Um, so it's really sad that PSL was suddenly cancelled, wasn't it? It's very sad for Pakistan cricket. Uh, it's the second tournament in a row that's been disrupted by mm. COVID cases. Um, last year, the tournament was postponed after the round games had finished, and then we completed the tournament the playoffs and final uh, later in the year. Uh, This year, I think bravely the owners and the Pakistan Cricket Board decided to host again the Pakistan Super League in Pakistan in two venues, Karachi initially and then 
Um, the second half of the tournament was going to be held in Lahore. Uh, but there was a steady trickle of players and staff inside the bubble um, picking up COVID. And after initially finding, I think, three players and one staff member uh, positive, uh, isolating them and, uh, and retesting the entire group of six teams and all their support staff, plus uh, the broadcasting and any other stakeholders inside the bubble, um, three more players were, were found to be positive. And with the prospect of that, it not ending there and, uh, and other, uh, uh, other players and staff um, subsequently being found positive, which is what they were forecasting, they decided that in the best interests of the, the health of uh, everyone involved, that they'd, cancel, that they'd postpone the tournament. So most sides had played five of their 10 round games. And so there's still half of, half of the first round still to be played and then the playoffs. And they're looking for a window, uh, perhaps just after the IPL finishes, um, or even again, like they did last year, later in the year around October, November time. It would have to be November, I think, after the World Cup T20. That's probably more realistic, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I would, I would imagine so. Just after the England tour too, isn't it? England's going out there in October, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are going out. I'm not sure exactly when, but it's very important that they finish the tournament because they have uh, the important financial yeah. uh, partners to take care of. Uh, so it's it's very sad for Pakistan cricket that uh, that they they've had to postpone it again. I know as a as a country, they're very proud of the product of Pakistan Super League. And yeah. so they could be. It's an excellent product. Some of the fast bowling and leg spin and wrist spin on show yeah. is incredibly exciting. Uh, and this year, um, there's been some superb batting as well. In 13 of the 14 games that were played, every total was chased down. Um, and it was, in, it was it, even without, with all that pace, it was very difficult to stop some of the power of both the local Pakistan batsmen and some international batsmen from uh, chasing down big totals uh, regularly, uh, totals of 190 were being chased down in the 19th over. So it's a very high quality uh, cricket tournament and they've, they are quite rightly very proud of the product. It's such a shame. It was, it was doing a lot, wasn't it, Andy, for the development of Pakistan cricket and um, a new Pakistan players before COVID, wasn't it? I mean, it was a great sort of pipeline of new talent, wasn't it? Yes, it is. You, you have to contract to emerging talent players, uh, new emerging talent players in your squad every season, uh, and you have to play one of them. And some of these emerging talent players are, are outstanding. Haider Ali batting at number three for Pakistan, uh, was one who came through last year. Um, we've got a young bowler called Danawaz Dani, uh, who, um, who really made an impact with his attitude and his pace this year. Uh, and almost every team has a story to tell about their emerging talent. So it's a, it's a great growth opportunity. And the best example of talent coming through and becoming very confident 
um, about their games through that exposure is is probably the IPL and and how their young talent has really grown in number and and really depth um, with their exposure to a, a tournament like the IPL. We spoke to Nathan Lehman, the, who was the strategist last year. Was he this year strategist as well? I mean, he he said you'd bought the Multan Sultans, you'd bought three leg spinners, three wrist three wrist spinners, and that wasn't enough. He didn't think he thought that the, <laughs> he thought that you can't the, get enough of them. You can't get enough of them. Yeah. <laughs> Our owner Alamgir Tareen uh, loves leg spin, and he was determined that we'd uh, we'd have our three leg spinners and three really good quality leg spinners. Um, Shahid Afridi, who's been around the block for many years. Yeah. Uh, Imran Tahir, the same. Um, the South African, uh, Pakistan-born leg spinner. And um, then Usman Kadir, who is Abdul Kadir's son. Uh, I and didn't just, know that. just burst well, yes, onto the international scene. So these are the three leg spinners that we had. And it, it really produced headaches for me because Alangir, the owner, wanted to play all three of them. <laughs> which... <laughs> It's difficult in a T20 side. Uh, so we always had a quality leg spinner uh, sitting out of the 11. Nathan said that according to his sort of algorithms or however he works it out, that leg wrist spin is still undervalued as a commodity in, uh, in 2020 cricket. Well, I, I, I know Nathan and I, I really enjoy his company and, and respect his views. Um, whether it's undervalued, I don't know. I think there's huge value placed on yeah. leg spin by captains and coaches and, and strategists and recruiters uh, in, the, in the leagues. And some of the talent we see coming out of Afghanistan on the wrist oh. spin, both right and left arm wrist spin. Yeah. It's really wonderful to see. I think it's, Afghanistan is just such a wonderful cricketing story. Absolutely, um, and uh, and and I, I, I've I've been privileged to get to know some of the young Afghani cricketers um, since my involvement in the league the, the last yeah. fifteen months. Who have you got to know? Because, it, as you say, it is a magic story. That yeah, um, probably the guys that really stand out for me are uh, Muhammad Nabi, who's the thirty-five-year-old off-spinning all-rounder, who is nicknamed the President. Um, in Afghanistan cricket circles and operates as such. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. I've had him in teams in the T10 uh, league in Abu Dhabi and also in the Caribbean Premier League. And he's a wonderful role model and example to young Afghanist cricketers. And, it, and one of the things that, that I really, I've really loved seeing is the way that he, um, he gets them together at whatever franchise tournament they're at. And they eat, they eat and socialise a lot together, and tr- and he gets them training together mm. as well, uh, physical training um, in the gyms. You see them uh, operating together, and they they I think partly because of his role modelling, they become excellent young professionals. And there's another there's a, there's a guy I would like to mention um, called Ramanullah Gurbaz who is a young wicketkeeper batsman who mm-hmm. came into the scene really in the Lanka Premier League. Then we picked him up in the T10 for the, the Delhi Bulls. And he, he's going to be a, a, a really special talent with the bat, I think. He opens the batting in T20 cricket. He's got all the shots. He's, a, he's one of these young guys um, that can play 360 degrees. 
Can you give his name again? I didn't catch it, but we all want to hear it. Ramanula Gurbaz. Ramanula Gurbaz. Yes. A young wicketkeeper batsman with a great attitude and tons of talent. And do tell me about Abdul Qadir's uh, wrist-spinning son. I want to know about him because we all love Abdul Qadir. He, Richard and I were honoured to play with him in Pakistan for two or three matches uh, a few um, years ago. Well, Usman um, is, a, is a wonderful young guy, uh, really good company, bright, articulate, always got a smile on his face. And he's made a real transformation. When I first saw him two years ago, when, I, uh, when we contracted him for Multan Sultans. He was a slightly podgy youngster mm-hmm. um, who, could, who definitely had a talent with his wrist spin. And Mushtaq Ahmed, uh, who's a good friend of mine, and oh, great Mushtaq Ahmed, yeah. one of our assistant coaches, um, he took him under his wing. And Usman has transformed himself physically. He's now in really good physical condition. He's disciplined himself with his nutrition and his training. And he was recently in, uh, selected in the Pakistan T20 side that played against mm. Zimbabwe. And he was man of the series in that series. Uh, he then went on to play against South Africa in the T20 series against South Africa in Pakistan recently and did really well. So he's a, he's a, a really exciting leg-spinning talent um, that has in, inherited some of uh, some of Abdul's qualities, obviously. What a pity his father isn't there, isn't still with us. Yes, after his it is untimely a death. To he, what joy he would be getting, well, is getting, I'm sure, from looking down and seeing his son. Usman was Abdul's. Um, Usman was Abdul's youngest son. We played with one of one of his brothers in Pakistan. Peter and I he was also a very talented player. Abdul, just historically, was the first leg spinner to prove himself in one-day cricket and prove the value of leg spin in one-day cricket with the backing That's of Imran right. Khan. It was a great insight by Imran Khan to put all his money on Abdul Qadir as a, at, both in test cricket, and but then realised he destroyed that assumption that seam-up was the only way of playing a, 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 a one-day match. Yes, and, and Mushtaq Ahmed played a really pivotal role in the 90. 90- two World Cup win mm. by Pakistan. Uh, he was a youngster that Imran Khan gave a lot of confidence to. Mushtaq always talks about Imran being this, this amazing influence on his career because he gave him self-belief. And self-belief is so important. Well, you guys will know. Confidence and self-belief in any profession, I think, is very important. In professional sport, perhaps even more so. As we're discovering with the way they just took away the belief of Bess and for, the, for England in this series, we're paying a price for it. Yes, um, that, that was an interesting situation, actually, with what happened with Moen Ali and then the request for him to stay. They've had some tricky decisions to make uh, on selection, I think, around the England camp. They're extremely busy uh, touring around the world and... Ed Smith, the head selector, and Chris Silverwood, the head coach, um, really have their work cut out trying to balance picking their best sides and sort of peaking, if you like, for icon series or ICC tournaments um, and giving people enough time off that these bubbles don't drag 
individuals down too far or too often. Uh, these bubbles are quite tricky to be part of. Uh, I mean, I've experienced them now um, for a number of these franchise tournaments. Uh, and, uh, and, and especially, I think, for people that are more, or tend to be more extroverted in the way that they approach life, being, being severely restricted in hotel rooms for days on end, mm. and, and then even once allowed out of quarantine periods, the restrictions around touring these days may make it much less a pleasant and interesting experience than it was before. Well, the heart really went out to Basto, you know. He, there he was. He'd got himself into form in Sri Lanka in a similar sort of conditions. Then he's taken away from out of the bubble and comes back and can't cope. And he really looked at the expression on his face when he was out in the second innings. I mean, it was tragic to, to watch. Yeah, I've, I've worked with Dom Bess uh, at England Lions level um, for a couple of years. And I... I really liked him. He's a, a bubbly, positive, uh, energetic character that tends to have a smile on his face most of the time. Uh, he's very ambitious uh, in, a, in a nice way. Uh, and he's, and he, in his young career, he's had significant um, ups and downs already. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch his, his progress. Uh, but yes, he's 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 taken a number of wickets and a number of really good wickets yeah. this winter. Uh, but also, I think it's evident that, that he's having some struggles as well with his consistency, with his confidence, um, and it is a tricky thing for him and I think his coaches to manage at the moment. Well, Andy, we're coming to the end of this program. How do you think cricket's going to re-emerge from the? as COVID gradually, uh, inshallah, uh, goes away in the next year? Good question. Uh, I am not a soothsayer, uh, so I don't know. Uh, but we see the, some of the effects in England, certainly, of the lockdown and hopefully the vaccinations taking, having a positive effect. Um, Globally, it's going to be a, a slower movement, I think, uh, movement forward. And I would imagine these, these types of secure bubbles that people have to live in uh, on the professional sporting circuit are going to be around for a little while yet. Uh, so the healthiest place for us to be is to contribute to those bubbles working. Um, we've just seen... A, a sort of devastating result of those bubbles not being secure enough in, in the Pakistan Super League. And we saw it in South Africa as well, of course. In that we've country. seen it in South Africa, Australia refusing to tour South Africa because of what happened there. So I think if we all make our contributions to these bubbles working um, and showing some patience and resilience to, to get through them, and I think you need both those qualities uh, to to sort of sustain a positive attitude um, through through many months of being under these types of restrictions, I think also uh, realizing and being grateful for the opportunities to still be involved in professional sport during this time when a number of people 
in in all sorts of work, walks of life are uh, str struggling to sustain themselves or indeed have lost their their jobs and sources mm. of income. I think that's a really healthy position to take. Certainly, personally, I, I try to take that position. I think that the the way in which the English Cricket Board actually has kept it going last summer, particularly, enormous boost for those of us who've many people who've had a really difficult time and have been able to carry on following uh, vicariously, of course, international sport has been incredibly wonderful. And, and the last six matches, I know it's been ended up badly for England, but it's nevertheless, it's been a thrill to follow it. It is. It's also, and also in fairness to the ECB, you know, I was pretty critical of them at the beginning of the pandemic. They did their best for recreational cricket. They did their best for cricket uh, cricket at all level too, didn't they, Peter? They, they really did. And, I, and, they, and they've done their best for it this next season too. We're going to have a pretty full season in. Andy, I know we're going to, Richard and I will be back playing cricket in April. It looks like we're going to have a full cricket season at the recreational level and it's something as the spring comes to look forward to. Well, I think you guys do mention the ECB. I think Tom Harrison's energetic leadership um, has, has certainly helped uh, put these events on. And I think they have been very positive and forward thinking in the way that they've uh, planned and innovated in their commitment to uh, ensuring that international cricket happens. Uh, obviously, they have self-interest in this regard as well. Uh, ensure income is uh, is healthy uh, uh, during this period. We need these events to take place for the TV right money to come in. Uh, but I think their their leadership has been instrumental in not, not only ensuring the future that it, uh, in the medium term for the ECB, but also uh, I think they provided a, a little bit of. Um, role modelling themselves for other nations. Yeah, to, that's true. Uh, in the first instance, when they when they put on that the, that series against the West Indies, I think it was West Indies and Pakistan, um, they showed that it was possible to do it successfully. Well, and three cheers then for the ECB, and three cheers for you. You've just flown back from Pakistan. You've really done us a huge favour for coming on and talking over so many really interesting and important and significant things. Thank you very much indeed, Andy Flower. That's my pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Richard. Thank you indeed for me, um, uh, Andy. And um, huh, we say this often, but I'll say it again. In your case, very strongly, uh, you have an open invitation to join us for a second innings. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. And... Uh, from me, Peter Oborn in Wiltshire, the sun's out, spring's on its way. Goodbye. Uh, from me, Richard Heller, I actually have to do two quick announcements first, and then I'll say goodbye. First uh, announcement uh, to listeners. I don't know if listeners have been struggling with the census uh, return, which uh, has just been handed out to us, but I can inform them that they will not accept cricket as a religion. <laughs> So um, don't put down cricket as your religion. It won't get through. Um, can I also appeal to listeners once again to submit their choices for the Wisdom Five Cricketers of the Year? Remembering uh, that you can't get it twice. And please put your choices into Oborn Heller Cricket, or one word, at outlook.com. And we'll collate them and present them before Wisdoms. 
Meanwhile, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a darkening southeast London.